Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Be Genesis 34, verses 1 through 17. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land, women of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a, th- for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for, your lo- for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to yourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's all good and it's all uh, spoken by you, 100% truth. Um, I lift up Pastor John to you. I say you would give him the words to say. um, And in the same breath, I pray that he would be less and you would be more. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It is good to be home. Uh, We just got back this week from being gone for five weeks, and it was a a good trip, uh, a busy trip, but we are glad to be home. And if you would like a very detailed update uh, for our trip, I really encourage you to go back and listen to uh, this past week's podcast uh, where uh, Pastor Matt and I spent a long time talking about our trip and the, the ins, and out, ins and outs of everything we did, all the 
speaking and preaching and presentations and everything else we did. Uh, but I will let you know that uh, when we left here, we were at 67%, and now we're at 87%. So, yeah, God deserves a, a hand for that. He did an awesome thing. Uh, and we have officially set our tentative start date now. Uh, once you hit 80%, uh, support, Life Action, they say, okay, let's, let's get a start date, uh, let's start signing the papers, so a uh, tentative start date is May 15th, so about a month and a half uh, is when we should be officially starting with Life Action, so uh, it was a busy five weeks, but very good, very fruitful, and God provided in great ways uh, through that, and again, if you'd like to hear uh, more of the details, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to this past week's uh, podcast as Pastor Matt and I uh, talked over that. So the, the passage we have here today, uh, interesting passage to say the least. Um, it's perhaps one of the, the more controversial passages uh, in Genesis, if not uh, the whole of Scripture. Uh, it's a passage that when, when we read through it, uh, we feel sympathy, grief shock, indignation. There's a whole gamut of emotions as we read through the things that happen in this passage. And it's interesting, when you read through it, it's like, is there anybody here who is totally innocent or anybody here who is to be totally condemned? And it's interesting, not not really. Uh, And another interesting thing about this passage is that uh, this chapter, this whole chapter, makes no mention or reference to God. Um, obviously, we have been going through uh, Genesis, and it is thick and heavy on being God-focused. And it was just interesting to me that this chapter, which really brings out the complexity and sinful nature of man, uh, doesn't make any mention of, of God in all of that. It, it ap- Actually, it opens up with introducing us to Jacob's daughter, although it doesn't introduce her like that. Uh, We know from looking at uh, passages previous, the chapters previous, that uh, it says that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, that Jacob wasn't fond of Leah, that he was deceived uh, into marrying her uh, by his uncle Laban, Leah's father, and that he was never really fond of, Jacob was never really fond of Leah. Uh, if you look back in the chapters where it's recounting the, the children that were born to Leah, it seems like every time a son was born, she would go, maybe now Jacob will love me. Maybe now he will love me. Maybe now my husband will, will live with me. Uh, she was a very unloved, uh, uncared for wife. Jacob was very indifferent to her. And the way that Dinah is introduced, we kind of see that indifference toward Leah spilling over onto her children when it says, it doesn't say, now Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. No, this is Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob. Uh, And as we go along, we will see how this indifference becomes uh, more noticeable. And it says that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And, you know, that phrase, went out to see the women of the land, kind of seems kind of innocuous, uh, even uh, maybe maybe innocent. But the term used 
suggest that Dinah was act, actually acting in a way that was less than being an, an honorable daughter. Uh, one, her behavior went against the customs of the day. Uh, girls of marriable age, uh, especially in small shepherding clans, uh, were not permitted to go out unaccompanied, uh, unescorted. Uh, and it's interesting, the word for went out is related to the same word that describes a housewife who conducts herself improperly outside the home. So that, that root word for the Hebrew word, the Hebrew phrase went out, uh, has some connotations to it that may say um, she's going out with less than honorable uh, intentions. Uh, and in this day and age, the reason young women weren't to go out unescorted was because unattached young women were considered fair game uh, in the cities and the times. They were considered uh, fair game. And so it's easy to see how Jacob's indifference toward his, his daughter, how his indifference toward her as a father would cause her to yearn for something more. Uh, it would cause her to yearn for love and acceptance to the point where she would uh, do something that she shouldn't be doing, going out unescorted uh, into the surrounding country. Uh, and that's just a caution for dads. Uh, with your daughters, if your daughters are not feeling uh, secure in who they are because you are giving them that security, if they are not feeling loved because you're not expressing that to them, your daughters will look for that security. They will look for that acceptance. They will look for that love somewhere else. And it's not always a good place that they look for it. So dads, I really encourage you, let your daughters know that you love them. Let your daughters know that you accept them, that, you, uh, that they are precious and valuable to you. God created them with that desire. And he created you, dads, to fulfill that in your daughters until such a time as you hand them over to a young man. So if you are not providing that, be assured they will find it somewhere. So we see poor Dinah running off, and as she runs off, she encounters Shechem. And the text, and it may get a little confusing because this is a guy, but he's also from the city of Shechem. So we try to keep that straight as we're talking through this passage. There's the guy Shechem from the city Shechem. So Shechem here, uh, she runs into this guy Shechem, who's described as a prince of the area, a prince of the land. And as a prince of the land, he's also accustomed to getting whatever he wants. And so as we see here in the text, he takes Dinah forcibly and he rapes her. Uh, he takes Dinah forcibly and he rapes her. And then afterwards, it's so interesting where it says uh, in verse 3, And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her which seems very incongruous with what just happened. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this. With this passage, there are so many different layers we could explore. Um, 
But I'm going to move on because there's something else I want to explore from this passage. But whatever his underlying emotions were, he forcibly took her and raped her. And then it says that he loved her and wanted her for his wife. So he goes to his father, Hamor, who is the leader of the Shechemites. And he says, get me this woman as a wife. So Shechem, Hamor, go off to talk to her dad, Jacob. Now, in the meantime, Jacob hears about what happened to his daughter. And, you know, when Tamar, David's daughter, uh, was raped, the text there in 2 Samuel says that David became very, very angry. And so we would expect something similar uh, from Jacob. We expect to read of some fierce reaction, or at least a fierce emotion that he felt. But it says in verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. So we, we don't see any kind of uh, real response from Jacob. And there could be several reasons behind that. But I can't think of any good ones. I can't think of any good ones. Oh, you, you raped my daughter? Well, let's just, let's just wait. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll just wait until my boys get back. Want some tea? You know, it, it, it's hard to read that and, and find a justifiable reason for his lack of a response. Uh, you know, saying nothing uh, to these men. And again, it could be that reflection of the fact that his lack of fondness or his indifference towards Dinah spilled over into an indifference toward, the ch- or toward Leah, spilled over toward an indifference toward the children of Dinah as well. And especially when we go further in Genesis and we see how passionate and affectionate he was with the sons of Rachel, the wife that he did love. There is a stark difference in how he uh, interacts with the children of Leah and the children of Rachel. So Hamor and Shechem address Jacob and Dinah's brothers. It says when Dinah's brothers got there, they were angry, as in angry as rightfully they should be, hearing at what had been done to their sister. Her honor, her peace of mind, had been stolen. And keep in mind, in this culture, uh, that made Dinah very, this, this event made Dinah very undesirable as a wife now. She was no longer a virgin. And so in this culture, that was huge. In fact, later on in Genesis, as we're going to see, We never hear of her getting married, but we do read of her taking care of Jacob in his old age, which probably means she was never married. This is probably a big reason for that. She became undesirable as a wife because of this event. So they weren't going to be easily appeased when Hamor and Shechem showed up. And what's interesting here, in the passage that, that Tony read for us, as Hamor and Shechem start talking to Jacob and his brother, or Jacob and his sons, Dinah's brothers, there's never even an acknowledgement of what Shechem did. 
know it, they don't acknowledge it, they don't try to explain it, they don't apologize for it. Dinah is just a commodity to them. And Shechem wants her for his wife. And another thing that we'll find out later in the text, you know, here they are negotiating with Jacob and Dinah's brothers, and it seems like, okay, they're, they're negotiating. Uh, Shechem is offering this, this huge uh, price for Dinah. But if somebody says, hey, I want to negotiate over you giving me something, but by the way, I already have the thing that you want. Will you feel that those negotiations are fair? See, what we're going to find out later in the text is that they're holding Dinah back at Hamor's house in Shechem, the city. So they've kind of got Jacob and his sons over a barrel in these negotiations since they are already holding Dinah at their house. So Hamor and Shechem are saying, hey, come on, let's, let's enter into nego- negotiations. My son really wants uh, your daughter for a wife. And not only that, but we're offering to, to let you trade and prosper in our land. You can marry our daughters. Our daughters can marry your sons. Man, it'll be great for everybody. Dangerous proposal coming from Hamor. And we'll talk more about his real motives here in a minute. But this proposal of Hamor to allow the sons of Jacob to intermarry with the Shechemites is exactly the reason that when Isaac was looking for a wife, Abraham sent to find him a wife back from his own family. It's why when Jacob became of age to marry, Isaac said, Jacob, don't marry any of these Canaanite women. Rather, find a wife from our family. Uh, And we, we read that in Genesis 24, Genesis 28, that it would be a tainting of the bloodline uh, of Abraham. And, and at this point, so up to verse 12, it's Hamor and Shechem giving this, this proposal. And notice what verse 13 says. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father. In other words, Jacob is kind of just a spectator at this time. This is his daughter, Yet we see that now he is just a spectator in this whole thing dealing with the defilements and dishonoring of his own daughter. He's become just a spectator as the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. And according to the customs of the land, it should say, because he had defiled Jacob's daughter, Dinah. But notice it doesn't say that. It says because they had defiled. He had defiled their sister, Dinah. So again, even with the the customs of the day, she should have been known as Jacob's daughter. But instead, we're reading of her quite often simply as their sister, Dinah. So it says that they answered him deceitfully. So what they're about to do is horrific and blasphemous. They tell these Canaanites that in order for them to be able to intermarry, these Canaanites first must be circumcised. 
Uh, and as we know from going through the book of Genesis, circumcision was the symbol uh, that God had given to Abraham uh, for the covenant between God and his chosen people. That was a sacred symbol of a sacred covenant that God himself had given. And so this proposal was sinful. It was blasphemous. One, these sons of Jacob had no business. They had no right to offer this, this sign of God's covenant to a heathen people. They had even less of a right to employ it in sealing a, a, a human agreement. Because that's what they were using it for. Oh, let's, let's seal our agreement in this intermarrying by you getting circumcised. And then, least of all, did they have the right to use it as a deceitful cover for their treachery. They had taken uh, the sign of God's covenant with Israel, and they cheapened it, they debased it, and made it worthless by using it as nothing more than a device in their deceitful scheming. Now, surprisingly, Hamor and Shechem agree to these terms. They agree to these terms, and off they go, and they assemble all the men of the city of Shechem to discuss these things. And this is uh, now what we'll be picking up after uh, what Tony read. It says in verse 20, So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. And only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. So right now it's like this poor Hamor guy, he thinks that they are at peace. The, the sons of Jacob have deceived him into believing, hey, everything's fine. Just do this one thing and everything's kosher. And you think, poor, poor Hamor. Well, read verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? So it's interesting. In his proposal to the men of Shechem, one... He completely leaves out the fact that this all came about because Shechem raped Jacob's daughter. He also leaves out the fact that the reason he's pursuing this circumcision is simply because his son wants a wife. He's not mentioning any of that. And then his real motives are coming out. You know, he told the, the sons of Jacob, hey, we'll intermarry everything. What's yours is ours. What's ours is yours. It'll be great. We'll be one people. Well, now his true colors are coming out. Hey, we are way more than those few, which means as our sons marry their daughters, pretty soon all of their stuff will become ours. His real intention was to saturate Jacob's bloodline so that all of Jacob's wealth would be absorbed into the men and the families of Shechem. And Hamor's appeal to their financial greed works. And all the men agree to circumcision. And then this is where the 
deceitful scheming of Jacob's sons pays off, and they put their very loathsome plan into effect. All the men of Shechem get circumcised, and it says in verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, you know, the men had been circumcised. Three days later, they are still suffering from the pain of that. It says, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. We can understand the anger and the desire for vengeance in Dinah's brothers, especially in the absence of Jacob doing anything. However, what they did was reprehensible, over-the-top, uncalled for. They, they killed every single man in the city because of what Shechem did to their sister. I get their anger, but what they did was wrong. What they did was sinful. And then what follows is just as reprehensible. Verse 27 says, The sons of Jacob, so this is now all of them, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, and it says, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Sternberg puts it eloquently, I think, and he pulls no punches when he says it this way. And it could be that this reference, because their sister was defiled, is ironic. Contrasting the brothers' fine words to Hamor and Shechem and their ugly deeds. Uh, their idealistic facade and materialistic reality. Their deceit as sacred rage when it was really unholy calculation. In, in other words, what he is saying is this. They pretended that it was all about the honor of Dinah. And that it was a righteous anger. But in the end, it boiled down to murderous and materialistic greed. They say, oh, they defiled our sister, so let's kill every single man and then plunder the city, take all of their women and children as slaves because they defiled our sister. It boiled down to, to no, it was murderous and materialistic greed in the end. Now, there's a little bit more to the story, but I want us to back up before we get to the end. So far, I've just kind of been... Uh, relating everything to you and unpacking the text a little bit. But now I want to talk about us. I want to talk about us. Uh, now, we, we already looked at how Jacob's failure as a husband to Leah uh, and uh, as a father to her children set the stage for all this. Leah went, or Dinah went out looking for the love and acceptance that Jacob was withholding. Uh, his neglect of her led to her looking elsewhere. We talked about how his indifference to her plight um, set the stage for her brother's anger and actually stepping up to do something, even though it was what they did was wrong. 
So his indifference and inaction led to all of this. But if we look back at Jacob's life, we see a lot of practices uh, and events in Jacob's life that are here in this passage reflected in his sons. Uh, Back in Genesis 25, we see his self-seeking nature and his scheming nature when he uh, takes Esau's birthright. When he's like, oh yeah, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. Now, the way that transpired, it was obvious that this wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment thing on Jacob's part. This was a self-seeking and scheming thing that Jacob did. Uh, In Genesis 27, we see his deceit when he deceived his own father to steal the blessing from Esau. He had already taken Esau's birthright. Now, and I want to say he did not steal Esau's birthright. He stole Esau's blessing, but Esau sold his birthright. So there is a difference there. Uh, So he did steal Esau's blessing by deceiving his father. And we even see Jacob profaning the name of God in that passage in Genesis 27 when Isaac says, how, did you, how, did you, how was your hunt successful so quickly? And what was Jacob's response? Oh, God blessed the hunt. God gave me this quickly. He drags God into his deceit, into his uh, scheming. And so we see these things in Jacob. And we see all of these same things here in his sons. And I want to make one thing clear before we move on. Um, Jacob was a worshiper of God. And we know that he did pass on that worship of God and the truth of God to his children. How do we know that? Because we're here today. Jacob did pass that on. Jacob, remember, he is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He was a godly man. Jacob was a godly man. I simply have picked out some of the worst instances that we see in Scripture for the purpose of this message. But I don't want to give the idea that Jacob was just some wretch who deserves our scorn and our judgment. No, he was a godly man that God used in amazing ways, and he was a man of faith to the extent that God put him in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Uh, Keep in mind that people can do the same thing to us. They can cherry-pick the worst things out of our life and then judge us by those worst things. How many of you guys would be upset if somebody did that to you? So let's not do that to Jacob because all of us have those worst moments, not just Jacob. And the amazing thing is that even with all these worst moments, God still identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even with all of your worst moments, when God says that he sealed us with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, that sealing, one, it was a mark of security. We are his, and that will not change. It was a mark of authenticity. Yes, you truly are a child of God. But that seal that it was talking about back in those days, you know, when they would fold a document over and then drip wax on the fold and then stamp it with their symbol ring, that was also a mark of ownership, saying, what is in this document is mine. 
God sealed you with this Holy Spirit, which means God, God says, I identify myself as the God of Chuck. I identify myself as the God of Amanda, as the God of Tim. We all have low moments. And yet God in his grace still claims ownership of us. Such an incredible thing. So let's keep that in mind with Jacob here. I am pulling out purposely some of the lowest points. But that doesn't change that he was a godly man. So anyhow, we see Jacob's scheming coming out in his sons as they make their evil plans, speaking to Hamor and Shechem. We see his deceitfulness come out in his sons as they convince Hamor that, hey, everything's cool between us. We're at peace with you. We see Jacob's willingness to debase God for his own purposes come out when Jacob's sons sinfully do the same thing, but this time they're using the symbol of the covenant between God and his chosen people. We see Jacob's greedy, self-seeking ways come out when his sons plunder the dead of the city. So in a lot of ways, what Jacob tolerated and, and maybe even justified in his own life, his sons took to excess. His sons took them to excess. For instance, uh, Jacob's sinful tendencies led him to uh, taking Esau's birthright and stealing his blessing. His son's same sinful tendencies in that area led to the wholesale slaughter of a city and then taking their survivors as slaves. So there are two main things I want us to learn from these passages, especially dads, but everybody, but especially dads. Uh, George Swinnick, in his book, The Christian Man's Calling, he says this. He says this of a father's uh, responsibility, a father's example uh, before his children. He says, children will sooner follow their father's poisonous patterns than their pious precepts. I love that. Children will sooner follow their father's poisonous patterns than their pious precepts. Richard Baxter says it this way, Children will sooner believe your bad lives than your good words. Children will sooner believe your bad lives than your good words. Dads, if that doesn't convict you, I'm convicted just standing here, honestly. So, make no mistake. What you model in front of your kids is going to defeat any words that you urge toward them. We all know the saying that actions speak louder than words. There's a reason for that saying. There's a reason for that saying. That's why 1 John 3.15 says this, Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. You can talk all you want, but it's your actions 
that are going to express what is truly inside. So, dads, what are you modeling before your kids? Anger? Materialism? Pride? Idolatry? Are they learning that it's okay to lie if telling the truth will result in undesirable things? Are your children learning that neglecting God and his people is okay if there's something else you'd rather do at the time? What is it your children are learning, not from your words, but from your actions? Because you are teaching your children with your actions. Whether for good or for bad, you are teaching. And if you aren't a dad, don't check out on what I just said. Don't go, well, that doesn't apply to me. This applies to every single person in here not just dads. Your actions are going to speak louder than your words to everyone around you, whether at work, whether at school, whether at home, not just dads. That's why it's so important that we as Christians model the love of Christ through our lives. Uh, If we don't, then our words are going to ring hollow when we talk to people about Christ. And and this is one of your fill-in-the-blanks there, Uh, for your notes. Whether you're dead or not, people will sooner believe your bad life than your good works, or good words. People will sooner believe your bad life than your good words. On the flip side of that, though, is something encouraging, something good. They will be more willing to believe your good words because of your good life. So, It's two sides of a coin. People will sooner believe your bad life than your good words, but they will be more willing to believe your good words because of your good life. Let us not love in word and talk, but rather in truth and love. And then the second thing we learn from this kind of compounds what we've just talked about. And that is what we may do in moderation, our children will take to excess. For instance, have your children seen you lie uh, if telling the truth would bring undesirable circumstances? Then here's what your children learned. It's okay to lie. That's what they learned. It's okay to lie. Uh, Have your children seen you neglect church because there is something else you'd rather do, then here's what your children actually learned. It's okay to neglect church. That's what they learned. See, we may think that what we're doing is mild, maybe even justified, but our children are going to see the root of that behavior and latch on to the root of the behavior. See, they may not understand all the nuances we use to excuse or justify our sin. But they will understand our behavior. They will understand our sin. And then they will act upon that since we, by default, have given them license to do it. You may think that you're doing it in moderation, but your children will take it to excess. You may have reasons in your head why it's completely okay to do that thing, but all your children see 
is you doing that thing, which then in their minds means it's okay to do that and maybe even a little more. So make no mistake, what you do in moderation, your children will take to excess. But because of the grace of God, the opposite of that can also be true. I say the flip side of that can also be true. When you pursue God, that's what your children see. When you pursue a life to honor him and glorify him, that's what your children see. And that is the pattern they see set before their eyes. And then that, by the grace of God, is what they will act upon. Our behavior is a double-edged sword. We sin, our children see that, and accept it as permission to sin. We pursue God, our children see that, and see it as an encouragement to pursue God. And again, don't assume that if you're not a dad that this doesn't apply to you. Uh, We see in Hebrews 12, which if you look at your notes and the list of scriptures that are used or referenced, Hebrews 12.1 won't be there, so you can write that in. Uh, I, I had to get Andrea all of the notes so she could print the bulletin, but I wasn't finished with the sermon yet. So, uh, there are some passages I'll be going over that aren't there, but uh, Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now it says that we should lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us. Now we have this picture that lay aside means to take something and set it to the side. Well, it's real close if I ever want to grab it again. But the the word that he uses, the phrase that the writer of Hebrew uses when he says lay aside, actually means to cast away. It doesn't mean just set your sin to the side and you can pick it up again whenever you feel like it. No, the phrase that he uses means to cast it away. To, to, you know, sit right back and hear a tale, tale of faithful trip. Yeah, it's not a great hymn of the faith that Pastor Harold would sing from up here, but... Uh, it's the theme from Gilligan's Island. Remember, they were the castaways. They were out of sight, out of mind of the rest of the world. Cast away. That's what we were to do with our sin. Out of sight, out of mind, never to be seen again. Except by all the celebrities they had on the show who often would then get rescued and somehow not them. But other than that, uh, we are to cast it away. Hidden, gone, forgotten. So when we decide to justify a sin in our life, because it's just a, it's just a little thing. Um, it's in moderation. I'm sinning in moderation. Drop the moderation part and be honest. I'm sinning. We often consider something one small sin. But consider this. You consider it one small sin, but it still took three large nails to take care of that one small sin. Stop with the humanistic view of sin. Sin is sin. 
And there is no room for justifying it. There is no room for excusing it. There is no room for moderation in sin. It's sin. Whether you're a dad or not, your actions in front of others will become their excuse. In 1 Corinthians and in Romans 14, in Romans 14, 13, this is another passage that isn't uh, written in the notes. Romans 14, 13, Paul makes, he says this. He says, we should not be a stumbling block to those around us, that we should not lay out a stumbling block, that when we're around people, our sinful actions need to be curbed. Our desires need to be curbed so that we do not become a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says the same thing to the Corinthians. Don't let your freedoms become a reason to put a stumbling block in front of your brothers. That's where he says, man, if eating meat makes my brother stumble, you know what? I won't eat meat again. Don't justify your sin and don't abuse the liberties you have in Christ. In Galatians, here's what Paul says about our liberty in Christ. Oh, I'm, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. It's my liberty in Christ. I'm free in Christ. You are. And Paul tells the Galatians, and here's the wonderful thing about your freedom in Christ. Now you are free to truly serve one another. That's not what we hear nowadays. Oh, I can, in, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this, I can do that because I'm free in Christ. But it's never, I can serve this person, I can serve that person, I can serve over here. No, it's always, I can fulfill my fleshly desires because I'm free in Christ. That's not what our freedom in Christ is given to us for. It's given to us so that we are free from being slaves to our sinful desires so that we can now be free to love and serve others. And this is the fill in the blank there. Do not let your actions become someone else's excuse. Do not let your actions become someone else's excuse. All right, real quick, let's look at the end of the story here. So after all the murder and plundering, Jacob sternly rebukes his sons. So finally, we see some reaction from Jacob. He didn't show any indignation over the horrible thing done to his daughter, but now we see what does bring a rebuke from him. And it's actually rather disappointing. Listen to this, what verses 31, 30 and 31 say. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Where was the indignation over their sin? They deceived a whole city. Was Jacob rebuking them for that sin? No. They profaned the symbol of God's sacred covenant. 
Was Jacob rebuking them for that sin? No. They murdered a whole village of helpless men. Was Jacob rebuking them for that sin against men and God? No. They greedily plundered the dead. Was Jacob rebuking them for that sin? No. Then what exactly was it Jacob was rebuking them for? Your actions have adversely affected me and my reputation. That was the root of Jacob's rebuke. It was about how their actions had affected his security, his peace of mind. It wasn't they had acted sinfully in several ways. It wasn't they had, 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 had done, that what they had done was an affront to God, that it had grieved God. It was that he might suffer because of what they had done. It was a rebuke brought about by a totally self-centered view of things, not a grieving over sin committed. Now we look at that and we're, we're disappointed in this patriarch of the faith, this man of God. But before we j- judge Jacob too harshly, think over something, especially parents in here. Have you ever gotten angry or scolded your children for their behavior because you were embarrassed by it? Or because of how it made you look? Congratulations, you are Jacob. What he did there is no different than what we as parents do when we scold and reprimand our children because we're embarrassed by their behavior, because of how it might make us look. I think it's safe to say that every parent in here has done exactly that at one time or the other. We respond to our children's sin, not because it is sin, but because we're worried about how it's going to make us look. We are inadvertently teaching our children that sinful behavior isn't bad because it grieves God. Sinful behavior is bad because it embarrasses me. So our children begin to have this low view of sin and a high view of self because that's what we taught them. I have such a high view of myself that your sin is unacceptable because it harms my reputation. And that's what we teach our children. That's what Jacob just taught his sons. What you did was horrible because of how it affected me. Therefore, when you are dads, when you are fathers, teach the same self-centered view to your children. That's what we are inadvertently doing. And I'll tell you, I am incredibly guilty of this very thing. I don't know how many times... I have said to my children, whether you like it or not, I'm a pastor and your behavior reflects on me. Now, is that true? Yes. Am I to have my household under control? Yes. But is that the reason my children need to hear from me that their behavior is unacceptable? No. I can be such a jerk to my kids. Because I make their sin all about how it's going to affect me. And it should be. You have sinned against the one who loves you more than anything. You have grieved the heart of him who sent his son for you. And instead I make it about me. We are Jacob. 
through this whole passage, we are Jacob. That's why as we cherry pick out some of the worst things that he did, we fit in every single one of those categories one way or another in our lives. Let us not use this to judge him, but rather use this as a mirror to look into the mirror and go, where do I see myself in this? Again, that's why we have looked at all these shortcomings. We need to be very careful looking down our nose at Jacob. This is the last fill in the blank there. We all need the grace of God to be the person God has called us to be. We all need the grace of God. Not just Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob. Every single one of us needs the grace of God to be who he has called us to be. And here's the thing. We want everybody to treat us as though, hey, I'm under grace. I need the grace of God. But so many times we're not willing to treat other people the same way. Rather, we look at them and go, you're under the law, now act like it. But we want other people to treat us like we're under grace. We all need the grace of God to be who he has called us to be. As we close with this passage, I don't want you to be discouraged by this, although it seems like one downer of a sermon. But keep in mind After all of this, what does Hebrews 11 say about Jacob? That he was a man of faith. After all of this, how did God identify himself? I am the God of Jacob. I'm his God, and I identify myself as such. So yeah, a lot of this may be hard-hitting, may be convicting, But keep something in mind. God doesn't convict us to condemn us. He convicts us so that we can be more conformed into his image because he hasn't given up on us. And because his grace is more than sufficient. So as we look at this and maybe using it as that mirror in your own life and how you have failed many times. The purpose God shows us our failures is not for us to wallow in guilt. It is so that we will cry out for his grace and become more like him. Proverbs says this, A righteous man stumbles seven times and rises again. Now, why seven times? Why not ten times, twelve times, four times? In scripture, the number seven is often used to give the idea of completeness. Righteous man stumbles seven times. He's a complete failure sometimes. But what makes him righteous? It says he gets back up. And how do we get back up? Philippians 2.13, which may not be in your bulletin either. Philippians 2.13 said, It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. This is why all of this shouldn't be a discouragement to you, but a rallying cry to cry out for God's grace so that he will continue to work in you both to desire 
to do his good pleasure and to give you the ability to do his good pleasure. This is a, a stepping stone. This is, this is like the boards they use in gymnastics where they run, you know, the springboards, they run and hit the springboard and it somersaults them. This isn't a message of discouragement. This is a springboard to vault you more into the grace of God so that you can be who he has called you to be. Let's pray as the praise team comes on up. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you don't show us our shortcomings just to point the finger at us or condemn us. You don't point your finger at our shortcomings so that we will wallow in guilt. But God, in your grace and your mercy, you point your finger at our shortcomings so that by your grace, we will repent of them and live in your grace live in the incredible fellowship that we have with you. I thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, but you gave us your son and you gave us your grace to free us from that. Father, I pray that this morning you will find us using this mirror of Jacob to cry out more and more each day for your grace, knowing that it is only by your grace grace that we can be who you have called us to be and what an incredible grace it is father thank you for that it's your name we pray amen thanks for joining our podcast we pray that god would bless you and strengthen you through his word if you'd like to find out more about ewc or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry visit our website at edenworshipcenter.com dot co